1: gun in Portland. It's cold. It dropped about 20 degrees in the last two days here, I think. So summer's coming to an end. I recorded this conversation with Elliot uh, at the beginning of the summer. So it's been a couple of months. Um, he's a, a vet, part of the vet series. He was in the Naval Academy and then he was an Air Force analyst free for, I think he said six years. Um, very nice guy, very thoughtful. Um he's uh, spent a lot of time thinking about American foreign policy, the military, his own role in, in all this, and um, how uh, his life's been affected by his service. Service. I've got a problem with service, the term service. You know, it suggests that everybody in the military is doing it for you and for me, and therefore we're obligated to be thankful about it, which makes us participants in something that we haven't decided to participate in. You know, you want to join the military, that's your business. It's a job. A lot of people who join the military are doing it because they don't have any other opportunity. It's their only chance to get out of town. It's their only uh, a chance to make some money, maybe to save some money for college, get, you know, there are all sorts of financial incentives to being in the military. Not everybody's doing it, uh, you know, with defending freedom, without even getting into the dubiousness of the concept of defending freedom. By the way, I I realized, I learned uh, just in the last week or two, I was doing some research on Edward Bernays, who is the sort of the godfather of uh, marketing and advertising and so-called public relations, Um, this notion of American troops being sent overseas to defend freedom was actually invented by this advertising fuck. Uh, The same guy who invented bacon and eggs for breakfast for a pork company. Same guy who convinced women that smoking cigarettes was a declaration of their feminist freedoms. Same guy who assisted the CIA in overthrowing the democratically elected government of Guatemala at the behest of the United Fruit Company. Same guy who convinced um, cities all over the United States to put uh, chemical in the water, uh, fluoridation, which was a byproduct of an industrial process. and the uh, aluminum company, Alcoa hired him to find someone that they could sell this chemical to, uh, to, uh, you know make some money on this chemical that they were producing as part of another production. I'm not, I don't know whether fluoridation is good for you or bad for you. I know that's a huge controversy, and I, I don't I haven't had the time to really look into it, but what I do know is, that the whole fucking thing came about because of this advertising guy. There's an amazing book called Silent Spring, Rachel Carson. Uh, I think it came out in sixty sixty one. If you haven't read it, it's a classic. It's sort of a, a founding document of the environmental movement. Um, and she talks, uh, she's talking about DDT and lots of other chemicals that were And are, in many cases, um, you know, completely disrupting the environment um, in many different ways. But one of the things I remember from that book is that the use of pesticides in industrial agriculture uh, didn't come about because there were big problems with insects that had to be or weeds that, you know, had to be. Um, battled on some industrial scale by spraying shit from airplanes. They can't, it came about because after World War II there were these massive stockpiles of chemicals that were used in, in the manufacture of weapons. And the way capitalism works is if you have a warehouse full of some fucking chemical— what you need to do and, and the market for it disappears for some reason because the war is over. Then what you need to do is find someone to sell that shit to because you've got an investment in that. You've got machinery that churns that stuff out. You've got workers, you've got jobs. We got to save the jobs, right? So what happens? People f- look for something to do with this chemical and they say, well, it'll kill bugs, right? It's poison. It's poison. It was made to be poison. It was manufactured to kill people. But the war's over. So what do we do with it? Well, let's spray it on vegetables. We'll convince farmers to spray it on the vegetables. And then the government will subsidize the farmers to buy this shit. Right? Because ultimately it's the government who's selling the shit. That's how these things start. They don't start because there's a need for the product they start because there's a need to sell something and so then the need the hunger for that thing is created by these advertising people right the pork company hired this guy to find a way for them to sell more pork so he came up with the idea that bacon and eggs is the classic american breakfast it wasn't people weren't eating bacon and eggs for breakfast then Until this guy came up with it. Then he convinces everyone it's normal. And once you can convince every everybody that something's normal, then it is. Then it is normal. We're unaware of the incredible extent to which our reality is shaped by these people. But it wasn't a secret. Bernays himself was quite open about what he was doing. He was proud of himself. Uh, He wrote a book called Propaganda in 1928. By the way, the the term public relations was invented by Bernays because he saw that the word propaganda had a lot of negative connotations um, from the war, World War I at that point. Um, Oh, and I started this whole rant because Bernays after World War Four, World War One, Bernays came up with this idea that the troops the American troops were in Europe defending freedom that 's what they were doing defending freedom abroad we 're still using that bullshit today. The government is still using that bullshit to say that 's why the troops are in afghanistan that 's where they 're in wherever the fuck they are in Iraq in Korea and Japan, you know they 're all over the world why oh they 're defending freedom demonstrably untrue bullshit, but it works. So it's still being used like trickle down economics. You know, we're still hearing that. I remember when Reagan administration introduced that bullshit in the 80s. Oh, just give more money to the rich people and then they'll, you know, build a factory and everybody will get a job and it'll, it'll trickle down to everybody else. Well, it hasn't trickled down for 30 fucking years, but people are still using that argument. You know, those are the job creators. Yeah, they're job creators. You know where they create jobs? In countries where people work for $2 a day. That's where they're creating the jobs. Who the fuck's going to build a factory in San Diego when you can build it in Tijuana? and pay people a fraction of what you pay them in San Diego with none of the environmental restraints. You can dump your shit in the river. You can dump it in the ocean. You can, Your employees can die on the fucking job, and it doesn't matter. Who's going to build a factory where they have to worry about that shit if they don't have to worry about it when they build it down in Mexico or in El Salvador or wherever the fuck they're going? That's the reality. Defending freedom abroad. Fuck. Anyway, here's... Um, Edward Bernays, talking about his work and the nature of of reality in his book, Propaganda, which came out, as they said, in 1928. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. He wasn't hiding that shit. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. Wow. Anyway, when I clicked the record button a few minutes ago, I had no idea I was going to be talking about that. <laughs> so there you go, tangentially speaking. Uh, if you're into this podcast and want to talk to other people who are into it and some of the issues that, uh, that come up here, uh, if you're on Reddit, do a search of tangentially speaking one word altogether and you'll find a community. There's about a thousand people in there now, um, chatting about stuff. I go in there, answer questions, uh, um, talk with people there. Um, what else? Uh, Mandy, I talked to you last week about Mandy's, um, thing. She's going to Mexico to, um, an ayahuasca retreat. If you can help Mandy out, please do. She was a guest on the podcast. Uh, a while back, she's in the midst of uh, an amazing recovery from a degenerative disease that she had, and um, she wants to continue it by uh, spending a week in Mexico at, at uh, with some guided uh, ayahuasca ceremonies. You can help her with that uh, if you go to gofundme.com forward slash Mandy Lives. Um, she's raising the people who run the retreat have invited her to come all expenses paid, uh, once she gets there, but she still needs to get there and, uh, she needs to go with a friend who can, uh, help her get around while she's down there. So she's trying to raise uh, three grand, I think to do it. And, uh, people are contributing at that page. Gofundme.com forward slash Mandy lives. It's a chance to help somebody, do something very meaningful and important and you're help them, helping them directly. You're not giving your money to some company that may or may not you know, take a big cut before it goes to the people who need it. So that's uh, very cool and anything you can do for her is much appreciated. Also want to give a plug to my buddy Daniele Bolelli who started a, a new podcast. He's already got The Drunken Taoist but he started another one called History on Fire which is a sort of um hardcore history type thing that he's doing um not in competition at all with dan carlin who is the king of the history podcast but danielle he's got his own take on things and he and and dan carlin are buddies so it's uh you know it's sort of an homage to dan so if you like hardcore history uh Take a look at History on Fire. Check him out. The first episode's up. The first one, and the, he has a episode zero and episode one. So there's episode zero is sort of talking about why he's doing this and, um, you know, what his inspiration is and all that. And then episode one is the first um, material, and it's about uh, slave rebellion in ancient Rome. Very uh, gory and interesting and uh, vivid. And last plug of the day, Andy Gurovich, who's been on the podcast several times. This podcast, he's co-hosted a few episodes, has decided to start his own podcast. Uh, so you can check him out at ontheblockradio.com. That's the site, ontheblockradio.com. I'm not sure if he's got his first episode on iTunes yet, but it's on the website. Um, it's with... Um, Jack Klugman's son. Uh, Hold on here. I'm just clicking on the episodes. Adam, Adam Klugman. Jack Klugman played uh, Oscar Madison on the TV show, The Odd Couple. I don't know if any of you are old enough to have seen that, but uh, for those of you who were around in, what, the 70s, I think that was on. Fantastic show. Tony Randall and uh, Jack Klugman. Anyway, um, talks about growing up As, you know, the kid of famous people in L.A. and some of the weird stuff that happened. Interesting, thoughtful guy. So good first episode from Andy Gurevich. Looking forward. I'm going to be on there sooner or later, sometime in October probably. So um, if you dig Andy and you dig his take on things, check out ontheblockradio.com. All right, let's get into this. I'm going to play you in with a song called Flag. I've played it before on the podcast. It's sort of the unofficial theme of these um, military vet episodes. It's by Ed Dupas, D-U-P-A-S. The S is silent. And you can hear more of his stuff, of course, at his website, eddupa.com. The album is A Good American Life, a great song, which I've played a few times as well. I really like this one, though. Um, Hell, I like them all I'm, I'm starting to get into country music Thanks to Ed Hope you enjoy this Thanks for listening Catch you next week
0: The flag goes up As the sun comes down Jets go by before we hear the sound Rise to our feet as if to say Red, white, and blue till our dying day The flag waves high when the tax man comes Says you gotta pay Just to be someone Yeah, it'll cost you plenty If you wanna stay Red, white, and blue Till you die day Now the flag hangs still When the wind don't blow they keep the TVs on to let the people know they gotta toe the line. Yeah, there's a dead to pay, red, white, and blue till their dying day. Flag comes down, and they fold it nice and hand it to somebody's wife. And nothing to do, nothing to say. It's red, white, and blue till it's dying day. Up, and the sun comes down And jets go by Before we hear the sound Rise to our feet As if to say Red, white, and blue Till I die in day Red, white, and blue Till I die in day
1: sound check here all right okay good i'm here with uh with elliot who uh is one of our veteran uh, guests who's agreed to uh well when i say a veteran guest <laughs> you haven't been on before but you're a veteran so uh happy memorial day and all that shit that was what two weeks ago last yeah, week. yeah i
2: think that's uh, that's when you reached out to me right i, I was
1: yeah, Yeah. no, when I wrote that, that email, I was thinking to say something about, I think I sent it on a Sunday and the next day was Memorial Day, but seemed a little tacky <laughs> <laughs> to get into that.
2: It was apropos, at least.
1: Yeah, yeah. So thanks for agreeing to do this, man. It's, it's good to, I think a lot of people are interested uh, to hear the inside story of what these experiences are like.
2: Yeah, hopefully I can add some value to some of your listeners.
1: Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So do you want to, you want to just sort of briefly summarize what your experience was, what branch you were in and how long and all that stuff?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, went to the Naval Academy class of 05 and then spent six years in the Air Force. So, uh, Navy and then Air Force. And so in the Air Force, I was predominantly working at the Pentagon, uh, as an analyst. And then I spent six months or so deployed, Uh, to Qatar within that. So that's, that's the scope of my military uh, endeavors.
1: Is it uh, common to go from the Naval Academy into the Air Force?
2: It's fairly uncommon. There were five, five people from my class who went to the Air Force, another five or so that went to the army. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, and one of my classmates went into the Coast Guard. So I think some classes like historically have been much higher uh, and some have been zero. So I had some some uh, not classmates some some midshipmen who were following following you know what i was doing and they wanted to go in the air force uh after my class and a couple most of them were shot down so i think there were a couple classes with zero and I'm, i'm not i'm not up on the current current policies i
1: guess yeah when you say shot down you mean that metaphorically
2: Uh, I meant that. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Uh, All these metaphors, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: When we're talking about the Air Force, you got to be careful.
2: They were denied in paperwork.
1: Denied, right. right. Um, So now Naval Academy, that's Annapolis, right? That's correct. And that's like uh, lots of history and it's the West Point of the Navy. Tough to get in, as I understand it. Yes. So you were a good student in high school?
2: I was, uh, yeah, I was relatively good. Yeah, I was a good student in high school. And, um, yep. I mean, that's... I would say like ninety percent of the people come in. Uh, you have to you have to get a uh, sponsorship from you know your representative or congressman, and so there's you know a small political piece depending on what state you're coming from. I came from Montana, mm-hmm. so I would say uh, that was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, strategic, I guess.
1: You, you like know your senator, right? He, he gets gas at the same place you do.
2: Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had a Democratic, um, two Democrats senators i think uh no i'm sorry democrat and a republican uh and republican co- um representative and they actually if i'm if i remember correctly they all actually nominated me which means that uh to me that there was a very short list so i don't <laughs> hmm. so okay usually they would they would ferret that kind of uh um you know uh, they would ferret that out amongst their staff.
1: Right. Right. Um, now listen, as your host, there's some, I, I need to tell you that you've pretty much given away your identity at this point.
2: Yeah. Understood. Understood.
1: Yeah. Do you want me to cut that out or you want to continue?
2: I, th- I think I'm okay. Um, You're okay.
1: All right. Yeah. Cause I want you to feel free to, to speak about things and not have to worry about it. So I'm sort of conscious of anything that gives away your, your identity, but, um, Okay. So you're, you can, you can handle that. So you, you went to the Naval Academy. Now, here's an interesting thing, cause I've spoken to some other, some other guys and a lot of the guys who've been in the military, their entry into it was like, well, you know, I was a shitty student in high school. I came from this shitty little town. I just wanted to get out of the house. And, and this was the f- quickest, simplest way to do it. Right. Um, but if you had the sort of academic uh, background to get into the Naval Academy, then you had other options. You could have gone to college if you'd wanted to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I would say, you know, I was a true believer. I was a, I was ideologically or, uh, you know, emotionally and everything motivated. I mean, I wanted to go to an academy since I was, I don't know, eight or so. My, you know, my grandparents on my father's side, uh, my grandfather, basically when I, when I was young, I wanted to be a soldier. And at some point I got some feedback that if I want to be a soldier, they told me you should go to an academy. West Point was the sort of idea until I did more research in the different academies. And so, you know, for a long time, I was working towards that as a goal.
1: Mm. Right. And you, was your grandfather in the military?
2: Yeah, he was, um, uh, he was Lieutenant Colonel when he retired and he was, um, Air Force and did, um, medical, I, I don't know what the, Air Force Medical Administration basically
1: hmm. and, and then your dad also was in the military
2: yeah so my my dad um, got you know had his number for Vietnam and uh, when he when he saw like basically what his probability was or something like that he he went um, purposefully to get a position to experience what Vietnam was like, so he joined the Navy and he went into a riverboat. Like uh, I don't know what what I don't know what the equivalent is now, but it was basically the riverboat navy, which yeah. is, con- I mean, culturally or uh, very different than what they used to call the the gray navy, which was like on, you know, the big ships in the ocean.
1: Yeah, yeah, my uncle did that as well. He was on one of those river river boats in Vietnam. Yeah, pretty hairy. Did did he see action?
2: So, uh, the action. I don't think. I mean, he saw. He saw the types of action. Like, I don't think his boat was ever under direct um, enemy attack, like f- from full-on assault. But what he saw, the things that were, uh, I guess, have been communicated with me, which, by the way, is not everything, because he feels most comfortable sharing that only with other Vietnam vets. But the, the few things I have are, um, he was on a boat where they were constantly setting off explosives uh, in the water, and they would, they did have. Um, you know, like Viet- uh, I guess Viet Cong or whatever uh, swimmers who were trying to basically take out these boats. So there's kind of just a perpetual sense of um, uncertainty. And then also with that is this kind of weird mixture where they would go into town and, you know, they would drink and have a good time. And then, you know, occasionally one of their, you know, friends or something would, would have a glass that, or I'm sorry, it would have like a an alcohol that was spiked with something that was uh, very problematic, like a glass or something, which uh, would, I guess, maim them or potentially even kill them. Yeah, yeah. So you never know where, where, and when you can actually relax. Yeah, I would say I'd say another thing, which is I think relevant to uh, maybe this discussion is there was also a an officer which he described to me on his riverboat who was very concerned about getting promoted, and so he worked uh, his men uh, off. Off the books, so way more hours than they were supposed to be uh, working, and then so he basically cooked the books to make it look like he was getting excellent performance when really he was just grinding his uh, guys into the into the ground.
1: <laughs> yeah, and because of the chain of command, you can't really say anything about that.
2: Yeah, and one yeah. yeah thing about the navy is, especially in those times and in those conditions, there is a lot of authority if you're the captain of a boat, um, at least locally, right? So they're kind of. Uh, you know, godlike in their interaction with their men. Yeah. Do you know if your dad's ever seen Apocalypse Now? That's an interesting question. I know I watched that in high school. Um, I think typically he was not comfortable watching violent films with me. So I'm not saying, I can't say whether he's seen it or not, but he's not comfortable watching that kind of thing.
1: With you or, or in general? I think in general. Hmm. So, so that's interesting. You've got your dad, who's got some problematic memories and, and, you know, doesn't want to, he's certainly not glorifying war, right? Absolutely. And yet here you are growing up you lived with him?
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so just slight background, my, my mother and father were divorced when I was very young and my father actually was the, my, basically my sole care caretaker. I mean, we went through another divorce with, uh, Uh, My stepmother, but, um, so it was a few years living under that household, but in general it was my father and myself and then eventually a, a younger sister, but, uh, that was, he was, you know, I and him had a very tight relationship. Still do.
1: So, so how does that happen then? I mean, your dad's seen it, doesn't want to talk about it, is obviously, um, sort of living in a bit of a shadow from his experiences. And yet you 're still sort of glorifying it as a kid and and you 've got this focus you 're going to not only go to the military but you 're going to be an officer
2: and you 're you know jumping
1: in both feet right
2: yeah i'm not i'm not quite sure i mean uh, to be honest he, um, maybe he had conflict about that i 'm not quite sure he he expressed this conflict to me pretty much at the last possible moment um, so before that he was always very supportive uh of my goals. And I think, you know, that was maybe maybe he's worried about me not I don't know, continuing to pursue something that was definitely gonna lift myself out of uh maybe our socio economic condition. So mm. so that is that is definitely part of it. And, and
1: it's also got his dad, right? So he's yeah. sort of like his dad's gung ho. He's not so much. You are
2: Yeah, I would say I would say the it's very curious um because another part of that is his his father is actually just i would say from a generation where they didn't talk about it right um my grandfather died when i was a a a junior in a car accident and it turns out that he was actually very frustrated and um not a big fan of the military that he experienced either um even though he spent a career there so uh in some sense my grandfather might have had the ability to step in and say something but it was almost too late at that point and you know the culture of everybody they were just so proud in a in a way of just sort of you know socioeconomic or you know, achievement of one's goals that they no one really spoke up until you know my dad told me one point you know i really don't I, you know are you are you sure you really want to do this like i don't you know has not he he doesn't want me doing it basically yeah. um he thought maybe why don't I go do something that's more creative or, you know, actually being, being an actor was what he suggested. I mean, he's an artist, like a painter. So, um, I think he saw that as a better outlet for my personality. And I didn't think that was a, I guess, a realistic option. So that's part of it. Part of it's just the socio- socio-economic picture.
1: Right. Right. And so you're from well, I was, was going to ask you, if you're from a yeah. small town in Montana, but there aren't really big cities. Yeah, yeah, that.
2: that's pretty much your only option. <laughs> it's, a bigger, it's small town or no town. Yeah, 30,000 yeah. or so, thirty to 50,000 people.
1: Uh, Western or eastern? Uh,
2: yeah, I'm going to give it away. Central, and it's, pretty, it's relatively blue-collar in general.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, I took a bus through Montana once a long time ago. I remember stopping. The, for some reason, the bus stopped and... I don't know what the town was but it, I remember it had the the biggest open pit mine in the world at the time. Yeah, that
2: that would be Butte. Yeah. And it's I don't know if it's the biggest in the world right now but it's still pretty pretty famous. They,
1: they were real proud of it. I remember there were all these signs <laughs> and you know somebody took me down, "Hey, you want to go see the pit? It's great. It's the biggest in the world." Like, yeah, "Okay." Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so, so you, you're in high school, you're, and so when did your dad have this talk with you? Was it after you'd already signed the papers or you were about well, to? not,
2: yeah, not after I signed the papers, but, um, after I'd been accepted, I believe. Ah. Yeah. Wow. I was early accepted. So we had, I don't know, maybe a year of that kind of, uh, openness about that specific topic, but I was, you know, I was pretty set in my ways too. So that's, I can't imagine looking back now what that must have been like for him actually. Yeah. Um, Cause he w- he, he really just wanted to be supportive too. So it's, um,
1: yeah, that's, that's gotta be one of the hardest things as a parent to, to be supportive. Even if what your kid is doing is something that you're really afraid of or not into. Yeah. My, I think my parents experienced that a lot in my life with all the crazy, stupid shit I did. Not not like going to the Naval Academy. I mean, like, you know, whatever, hitchhiking and stupid stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, though, you know, so the the things that I've learned about his experience have been after I have been in the military. So right. part of it was that at that point he was actually not communicating with me about those types of experiences that he had had. Do you think it would have changed your trajectory if he had? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I mean... It's it's you know early enough on. It's definitely possible, but you know who knows. Will
1: he will he listen to this?
2: Oh yeah, I mean we're we're pretty close. I imagine he'll listen to this um, as soon as I send him the the the, uh, the broadcast.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's. Hmm, I wonder how that's going to feel for him.
2: Well, it's one of these things. I mean, he. He's still very proud of me in my life and we still have a great <laughs> relationship. So I don't, I don't imagine it'll be damaging. Um, yeah. And you came out of it. All right. You, you didn't, did you see action? You were I, just, I didn't see, I didn't see direct action. No. Yeah. Uh, when I was deployed, I was in, uh, the air operate, you know, air operation center, which is in Qatar. Right. Um, no, yeah. I never picked up a weapon on a battlefield
1: right yeah well that's that's about as uh as good as you can get i think in, in this especially in these days you know because a lot of people uh, you know they, they they even these guys who join the national guard and then they end up in iraq or afghanistan yeah. like that's crazy
2: yeah and I, those are those are most of the people that i went to school with so in, in some sense i had a privileged privileged path um many, you know one of uh, a good friend of mine who was a wrestler uh early early on the war was killed uh, you know, while I was still in school, because he was, you know, he had joined the guard to pay, help pay for school, and then, you know, he was involved in a, a Humvee rollover, and I mean, that's just instant, instant game over. Yeah,
1: yeah, crazy. So, um, what years are we talking about here? How, how long ago?
2: Uh, so, okay, so I graduated in two thousand five, and I've been out now uh, four years. So, okay, so it was, was uh, two thousand
1: ten. Right, right, so you weren't motivated by the whole nine eleven frenzy,
2: yeah, it's pretty strange, so you know, looking back, I mean it was a very it was my freshman year, and it was a very important year. um you know we, we didn't have a war going on, so when we it, and it wasn't like I was trying to dodge war or anything, I was still pretty gung ho, uh, I think at the naval academy uh for my form of service, which i you know I preferred like many other young men to be. Me. Um, you know, like a special ops or, you know, Marine or something when I was in the junior classes. But uh, so I was pretty motivated by the uh, the need, I, I guess, from the 2000 and uh, September 11. So um, it it was very impressive, I guess. And that contradicted exactly what I was feeling personally by my interaction with what was going on. I don't know, learning about how nonsense a lot of the things that were being sort of i don't know it's not really brainwashed but really communicated to us um it's very strange sort of dichotomy i guess part of it is you just get caught up in the some to some extent the day-to-day in your own life and your own relationships and your own time in life uh after all the kind of major excitement has settled that it's a new normal
1: yeah you know you know i was talking to a guy earlier um Who was a Marine, and he's a very smart guy. And I can tell you're a very smart person too. And and we were talking about how um, being in the military is kind of, in his experience, was sort of insulting his intelligence because they were saying things that he was thinking. Come on, you really expect me to believe that? You know, I mean, I think the example he gave was. Uh, he was in uh, the first assault on Iraq and uh before they set out you know and crossed the line and all that. these guys said, "You know you guys know that the quickest route home is through baghdad, and he was like that 's bullshit, you know yeah. why are you saying that? but um you know we talked about that, and he said, "Well." you know, it made sense because they're pitching their communication to 18 year olds who barely got out of high school, who are in the infantry, you know, and that's who these people are. And they're from small towns. They don't even know where the fuck Iraq is. You know, they're just small town boys out for a good time or, you know, what they think is a quick solution to whatever their problems are, get a job, get an education. But I'm thinking about people who go to the Naval Academy or West Point or the Air Force Academy, guys like you who are really good students who could have gone to top flight college. You know, you're on a track for a professional career. You're not um, you're not the same. You're not coming from the same kind of background. And so is the communication and the indoctrination that you're getting more sophisticated or is it the same sort of blunt? um, the propaganda?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I would say in general, it's not terribly more sophisticated. And, <laughs> and I would want to say too, there's, there's gotta be something. I mean, I have a lot of very intelligent classmates who, you know, for better or worse, are are, you know, they're more or less true believers. Right. And, um, I mean, we need those types, we need those people leading the troops because the troops have to believe in what they're doing while they're doing it. Uh, at the same time, it's a it's a peculiar question to ask. You know, does intelligence correlate to this kind of uh, critical thinking, or
1: you see that's exactly what I, where I was going with this. If education is all about critical thinking, and I imagine you're getting a good education at the Naval C- uh, Academy, yeah. So how yeah. is it that you don't that students aren't turning that skill? to what they're being told about America is the greatest country that the world's ever seen. And, you know, we're going over there to defend freedom or whatever bullshit that they're they're spouting out. It, it feels, I mean, not to insult anyone, but I've, I've always had the same conundrum with um, like Catholic intellectuals. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, wait a minute, you're really smart. And yet
2: you believe, you know, all this Noah bullshit. I, I don't get it. Well, and I know there's a full literature out there on, um, you know, uh, what is it, um, self-deception, right? So, that's that's kind of where I turn to, to to try to, you know, make rationalize it in my own mind. Which is, you know, the people who are the most complex, you know, complex apologetics. Basically, they're very smart and they have to trick their very smart brains in very strange ways. Typically. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, that's what I would say to that.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't also, know.
2: I would emphasize there's a difference between really good training and like a kind of a broader education mm, good point. so for example, as naval academy there's there's barely even like a biology department. there's nothing i mean there's a there's sort of some philosophy philosophy and a little bit of a liberal bias in the English and humanities, but it's it's they're relatively i mean most the emphasis is on engineering, right? so in engineering to a great extent, you have to sort of believe what you're handed and. execute on that. And so your, your space for critical thinking is very small.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. Right. It's not really, did you do any liberal arts classes there?
2: Yeah. So I had the mandatory sort of uh, English classes, which were, I mean, again, this is pretty interesting, right? So I remember reading, um, ordinary men (laughs) and I had an instructor who's like this really hardcore Marine and just thinking, you know, don't you see the we never really talked about the similarities with the, you know, our experience and, and this book. I, just, I don't know the just, book. What's it about? Um, so it's about, um, if, uh, I think I'm getting the, hopefully I'm getting the title right, but it's basically about, um, the, the rise of Nazism and how, you know, it's just ordinary people in, in the going along with making small decisions that that create this like systemic problem, which is, you know, the third Reich. <laughs> so, um, so there was some potential for exposure um, in, on the basic level, and that's something everybody would have. And then, uh, I, I mean, I elected to take a philosophy of religion course, and um, I would say that was pretty complicated. Uh, I ended up being, I was, I was sort of, I would say, generally open-minded when I went into the course, and I had, there was probably one other atheist out of 25 people, and the rest were... All arguing for apologetics, and the instructor was typically trying to be um, the devil's advocate to these other students. But in the end, it turns out that he was actually um, uh, a devout Christian. So when I submitted a paper, my paper was that I was convinced about you know um, the lack of whatever uh, um, uniqueness for Christianity, and he. He gave me a big fat F. He couldn't understand it. Um, and then, you know, when I went to argue for him, at least saying, like, can you judge it on the merits of the of the intellectual rigor? Um, he was just kept adamantly saying, like, he doesn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't get it? Yeah, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you look back, I can imagine if he got it, he wouldn't have the same philosophical worldview, right? So it's, there's, there's a sort of intellectual conflict of some sort there, right? So... Eventually he, actually negotiated him up to something like a, a C C plus or something. Wow.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean you'd think he'd be able to get it if he'd been playing devil's advocate.
2: You know? Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I, I completely agree. But at the same time, uh if he if he was um I mean, he was a true believer himself, so I mean, it was not the not the party line.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about um the the capacity for self-deception I, I was reminded a friend of mine is a very very good uh, magician and uh yeah he he's done the same trick in front of me 20 times and i don't have a fucking clue how he does you know any of them but he'll he won't tell me how he does them uh, but he'll he'll repeat it you know and let me watch and watch from different angles and focus on different things and and one one day we were doing this and I just got so frustrated. And he said, hey, don't worry about it, man. The easiest people to fool are the smart ones. The the hardest people to fool are idiots and children.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe there's something in there. The The will to believe is is pretty important, I guess.
1: Well, and there's also like the... It's hard to manipulate someone's intelligence when they don't have much of it. You know what I mean? It's like... Because a lot of uh, a lot of magic is um, a distraction, I forget what the term, where you pull someone's attention where you want it so you can get away with shit, you know. And children and idiots, it's really hard to pull their attention because they're scattered, they're all over the place. And it's not a trained focus, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there is a way that, that intelligence actually lends itself to self-deception, I think
2: yeah it's interesting bringing that up i was thinking um something there's something related to that which i would guess is pattern you know someone's ability to pattern recognize yeah. and you know there's there's actually you can i guess you can over pattern recognize so a lot of people who are really you know like let's say uh you know people that are ascribing patterns where they don't exist i mean they have to have a pretty decent level of intelligence but they're not stepping back and kind of letting that go and finding out that, you know, maybe there's just a lot of things that they, they, they don't believe that they couldn't understand or that they don't understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a line I often I often go to as uh, a football coach. I may have even said this on the podcast. Fuck, I may have said this 20 times on the podcast. I have no idea. <laughs> but there's uh, this football coach was being uh, interviewed and he, he was some legendary coach. I don't remember who he was, but they said to him, so what's, you know, what's the secret to being a great coach? And he said, well, the secret is you have to be intelligent enough to really understand the game, but not intelligent enough to think about how little it all matters.
2: Yeah, uh, you're getting there from, I mean, then then you're highlighting uh, motivation and uh, I guess, um, what was I thinking? Confidence. I think confidence is a big part of it, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Confident that you're in the, that your perspective is immaterial in what you're seeing, right? That you're, you're the all observing authority. So, you know, you're immersed in it. It, it matters to you. Therefore it matters, right? You don't, you don't want to have that higher intelligence where you say, okay, it only matters to you, right? You're recognizing these patterns because this is you looking at that thing. That's a, that's a higher level, uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I I tend to agree with you. I think about, I mean, the the kids that are like that were like me, uh, who were very driven to be motiv- to be that level of motivated. You have to you have to ascribe a hell of a lot of importance to what you're doing.
1: Um, so let me ask you a really awkward question. Okay, go for it. Um, since you mentioned ordinary men, which you got the name right by the way, Reserve Police Battalion 101, and the final solution in Poland is the subtitle. Yeah. Um, if you had been born in in Germany in the 1920s, do you think you would have been a brown shirt and a gung ho Nazi?
2: Yeah, tell me tell me what time. I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm uh, above that. I mean, pro- probably it depends on the age with which I came into con- contact with that kind of yeah information.
1: Well, that, again, that's an honest answer, and and I I think it's the only honest answer because I I can't say I wouldn't you know or. You know it depends so much depends on your influences
2: at an early age and well i i mean i you know. 'd like to just say that this i mean one of the things i'm you know part of the reason i' i i reached out to you is i mean i'm mo- emotionally moved by the fact that young men who you know who are like myself but even maybe less aware you know they volunteer when they're seventeen eighteen years old, and you know everything about you know brain science and uh, you know current psychology seems to say that, you know, there's, there's a lot that needs to be matured before that person actually has the right capacity to make that kind of decision knowingly, right? So um, I think that's, to me, somewhat morally problematic about our culture.
1: Yeah, but then it can go even further, right? Because you could say, all right, take a 30-year-old person who's never been in, in the military. Can they make that decision knowingly? Can anyone really make the decision knowingly, other than someone like your dad who's been there?
2: Fair enough. So yeah, I mean, maybe for the for constructing the vote or constructing some other some form of decision making, that's that's definitely relevant. But yeah, yeah. it's like
1: it's like getting married. You know, What is that line <laughs> that second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience? you know yeah <laughs> it's like there's a certain amount of disbelief that's necessary to to make any of these major life decisions i think um so anyway so you now now i'm interested in this though cuz you go into the naval academy you're a true believer in the military culture but you say you're you're an atheist
2: yeah well i mean actually that happened to me, that happened freshman year. Um,
1: freshman year at the academy?
2: At the academy, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's, you know, if thinking back, I, I, it's sort of like one illusion leads, it was sort of a domino effect, I guess. Um, and the first would be just the disillusionment with whatever the man, the institution, as it was. Um, and then, you know, I guess quickly thereafter, religion was something I spent a lot of time reading about and questioning. So, I uh, you know, I guess it probably took a few years to really work it out more or less in my head, but I was, I was pretty quick to just call bullshit on a lot of different things.
1: So you were, you were a believing Christian when you went?
2: Yeah. When I grew up, uh, I was, I was a, a Presbyterian and, um, you know, I still think my, you know, my the church I grew up with and the community I grew up with was, was very important and uh, a positive influence on me uh at least other than the dog dogmatism i guess um socially it was very positive right and i i don't know i, I got there maybe part of it was because i was uh di- you know divorced from that community that could be a, a part of it um and i sort of i guess i felt some some extent let down um also was grappling with you know i guess a lot of social issues or you know, coming of age, sort of dealing with my feelings around sexuality and this kind of thing in a vacuum of, of, um, information and a lot of, you know, really weird, uh, culture. So I think one of the major thoughts that I had about Christianity was, well, at a minimum, it doesn't really talk maturely or intelligently about sexuality at all. And, um, yeah. So,
1: yeah. So, Okay, I'm just trying to like, uh, un- understand the scene. You, you go from Montana to Annapolis, Maryland. You get your hair cut, you're wearing these fancy uniforms, you're this elite uh, academy being trained to be the future leaders of America, and that's when you start asking really profound questions about things
2: absolutely i mean i think
1: (laughs) good timing man
2: (laughs) i I don't know the right quote but there's something about the the you know the impact of reality you know Um, (laughs) yeah
1: i I know what you mean it focuses the mind or something
2: yeah uh we'll come to that later but yeah Yeah. i mean i think part of it was i had a a lot of i mean it's it's just the nature of the beast but you have a lot of juniors you know yelling at you and talking to you about warfare and you know the first thing you can think is uh you know, what the fuck do you know about warfare <laughs> it's like uh they're giving you all these instructions and i mean they need to be practicing their skill set uh and that's understandable but the realism with which they believed in their their uh, wisdom was was just too much for me I really uh, couldn't hold back
1: right so okay like so you get these little petty topic. authorities yeah. yelling in your face i see okay and that makes you question the nature of authority in general
2: yeah i think also you know you um, coming from. I'm mean, coming from Montana. My dad and I have had a, a really good relationship. So it was actually fairly autonomous and, you know, it, you know, self-discipline is a very, very different thing than, than, uh, directed discipline, I would say. Yeah. So, um, all these people are trying to tell me how to live a life that I feel like I've already, I've got a good handle on. And so that was definitely this irreverence, the definite, like, let's see, my awareness of irreverence, irreverence really came to fruition there. Hmm. So I didn't. It was just like a, a difference I didn't know existed beforehand.
1: That's interesting because you know the, you get to a, a situation where a lot of people would have felt pressure to conform, and in some ways, that's the first time you felt a lot of
2: pressure not to conform. Pressure. Um, well, I mean, there was a lot of pressure to conform for sure. But I just felt sort of like uh, um, I just. I don't know. It just didn't seem right to me to, to you know, just the just, bullshit flag just kept coming up, you know, like, right. and then sort of in the Buddhist way or, or in a meditative way, I'm thinking, oh, there's a bullshit flag. And like, you know, there, all of this thing that you're talking about is completely meaningless. A lot of nonsensical words and whatnot.
1: Right. So you mentioned sexuality. Were you um, like when you left high school, had you been in relationships or did you show up sort of a blank slate at the academy?
2: I would say'm closer to a blank slate um, part of that was focus um i mean i had I had dated a little bit, but I hadn't been really physically intimate and um I had very good social relationships with you know men and women, so i don't it wasn't really an awkward thing plus actually at the time, I was very adamant about my uh, sexual purity, right so that was oh big, really that was a big issue that I had to the wall that wall had to get dropped uh, first i mean there were um, yeah, it was, it was conflicted. I actually think I had, I mean, I had a, a few opportunities where I was, I literally would say, you know, really, I'm not comfortable with this. So I'm going to save myself for, for, uh, I guess I'd be saving myself for, for my, my one and only wife or something. Right. So that was the, that was the thought at the time.
1: Right. Right. Wow. So you were a militant virgin.
2: Yeah. And actually that, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that has a lot to do with, um, A lack of confidence that that played itself out in other venues of of uh I don't know effort or elitism and so like all of these things kind of came together I guess uh something like I I remember clearly judging people very harshly for not being um you know I don't know abstinent or or uprighteous in in many different ways right and I was in retrospect um just hiding my own insecurities.
1: Wow. So you would have really despised me at that point.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the nuances, uh, you, like your literature, maybe. Yeah. I probably would have been pretty, you know, maybe pretty weirded out, but at the same time, <laughs> the, the culture I came from, uh, the friends that I had were, were all, you know, swimmers who had sex a lot and were, you know. Laid back and smoked a lot of pot, and so.
1: Oh, okay. Um, so you knew I had, that. I had world.
2: good. Now I would say I had good influences, and, and they, you know. Um, <laughs> actually, if you if you don't mind, there's a story. Of yeah, of please. My best friends from Montana. Um, you know, he. I remember at one point it was myself and another person who was really militant about going in the military, and we were all, um, you know, really good friends. And we sat him down. We basically tried to ha- we tried to have an intervention on him because he smoked a lot of pot and he was just we, what we thought was just we thought he was morally you know he was losing himself so we we sat him down and we're, we're like in a good Christian way you know we really really care about you and we want you to know that we're here and we can help you you know move away from this path and he looked at us and he was just like you're what the fuck you guys want to professionally go and kill people <laughs> and I and he's like how the hell can you talk to us about, or talk to me about this, you know, my, you know, moral, you know, life. And so it's something that, you know, looking back, I still remember fondly because it was the first kind of probably seed of a, of a, of that kind of deteriorating worldview. Mm. I, you know, thinking on that more and more, I, I, uh, just, I started to, start to do agree.
1: Are you still in touch with that guy?
2: No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? So, yeah. So he he went to the University of Chicago um, to study physics and like and he tried to double major in uh, physics and um, like Latin American studies or something. And you know he he experienced the the Chicago you know drug scene and um, and I mean we we're really close, kind of like brothers in a way. So at, at some point, I mean, I, he actually came out to visit me for Thanksgiving and we snuck him in. I snuck him into the academy. <laughs> so so we have this guy walking around with like just hippie-ish clothes and just a big fro and um not a fro full fro but you know just un, unkempt compared to the, the standard crowd <laughs> and uh he you know the the auspice was that he was just uh, coming to visit the naval academy as if he wanted to you know come there for school and it was just it's kind of a kind of a big joke for the, for the weekend
1: wow wow that must have been surreal for him huh
2: yeah absolutely for him it was it was uh, joining a cult
1: In the belly of the beast Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, you mentioned something about a cult in one of your, your emails. Uh, What, what was that?
2: Yeah, there's a, so um, I mentioned there was a cult that I inadvertently uh, started. So, so to take it from where we were talking about my uh, religious uh, sort of questioning, I I started reading a lot in existential philosophy and I found, um, I found a, a captain who was also an instructor who started a course. Uh, just going over Robert Solomon's uh, existentialism, and so we. This became a club, and I was later on. I was uh, helping administrate this this course, and another another officer um, and I were having a discussion about my interest in starting something a little more. Um, I just thought maybe we could catch up on contemporary, you know, philosophy or ideas, and he said, "You know what? I've got something. This is what I've been studying for years. I mean, I, I'm. I've, let's you know, you just give me." a bunch of uh interested people and and we'll we'll start this right up so i had this group of people that i knew that were interested in this kind of thing i, I sent out an email blast i let everybody that was in my that i knew who might be interested know about this thing so so these but bear in mind were potentially the the most critical thinkers at least i thought um at the uh naval academy and this this um it was a commander started his first class and um he started talking about, um, basically, uh, I want to just just roughly, like, aliens and the, the change of Gaia and all this kind of New Age woo-woo stuff was all amalgamated together. Um, and, like, the you know, the first, you know me and a few of, few of the people that I was closest to were kind of, like, wide-eyed, like, what is going on? Um, so I went through maybe one or two of these sessions because I'd set it up. I'd set up a whole... Whole semester of this kind of thing, um, and then I was like, "All right, um, this is probably going to die of its own weight." Uh, so I just stopped going. And then I don't know, something like three months later, I went back, and the thing was growing. It was like a, a cancer. There were so many people that were were thought his ideas were so interesting, and um, it it continued to the point where I was very uncomfortable. So I went to see the psychiatrist who is doing research on like our social psychiatrist who's doing like more like sociological research on the academy and uh i told her i was i sat down with her and i said look I, I need some help this is a pretty kind of sensitive weird thing but somehow i've started this this group of people who are basically a cult uh, and they're waiting for something to to happen like in the near future um oh it's an apocalyptic cult yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a violent apocalyptic, but it was definitely, there was something near term that was growing in this, in this storyline. Um, as a matter of fact, he thought that myself and one of my friends were were part of that, um, which was weird. Uh, actually, at one point we, we, we were not very mature. So we, we acted like we had ESP. Uh, in front of him and he was just totally taken by it and we were just totally very, you know even more uncomfortable because we thought that you know this is ridiculous um so anyway i told this i told this four star and she just looked at me it was the most uh you know I just totally opposite of what i was expecting and she said you know you're in a cult well i mean like this is a cult wait why do you? you know, like she was like so her her point of view was this is the norm and there's nothing we're gonna do about it and i was just i was Was gasped. No, so so, well.
1: What did she mean, though? Did she mean that the Navy was a cult? Well,
2: I think she meant the Naval Academy, Um, and you know that was her personal perspective. I think, but you know, from from her academic view or from her outside view, if you will, um, that that's what she that's what she viewed it as. And so that was to me very true, but particular or peculiar. And uh, I wanted help, so I, I I basically had no no real help for this, uh, situation. So, um, you know, what, it, what ended up happening actually shortly thereafter is he was, um, he was dismissed on a sexual, not a sexual, something like a sexual harassment charge, which is in most ways, uh, unrelated to this, this organization that he started, but re- related in the fact that he had this, this true belief in in his, you know, sensory perceptions of another person in their life. And so he had told somebody that he thought they were living incorrectly. And that person happened to be a colleague of mine, uh, in this, um, sexual assault victim intervention group that I worked in. Wow.
1: Okay. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, uh, sexual assault intervention group. So uh, what percentage of the cadets are women at the
2: Naval Academy? You know, I don't, I'm going to say when I was there, it was approximately 15%. Right. I I think, I hope, I think, I hope it's gone up a little bit, but I don't think it's gone dramatically up.
1: And I'm assuming sexual relationships between cadets are, is prohibited.
2: They are not fully prohibited. They're prohibited on campus. Uh, Uh, They're prohibited in a lot of, they're prohibited in many different ways, but um, there, you know, there is an allowance for upperclassmen to date themselves. And carry on outside of campus. Right, right. And
1: did you know anyone at the academy who was openly gay or obviously gay?
2: That's a, that's an interesting question. I, looking back, I'm not really sure. Um, at the time, so that the the new the new rule for the for the military actually it wasn't in effect, so people were not openly gay.
1: So this was don't ask, don't tell. Period
2: yeah absolutely and i mean there were definitely you know we definitely people definitely had their suspicions uh i mean there were rumors but i'm i'm usually one to discount or just not even care um we had a i call it a sister school but there was a you know there's a school um oh now i'm forgetting the name um it's there's this philosophy school you might maybe would know it um yeah, I'm spacing the name. Anyway, it's a very liberal school, basically right next door to the Naval Academy. And there were rumors of some midshipmen dating. St.
1: Men. John's?
2: St. John's, yes, thank you. Uh they were dating men there, but that was all completely under discretion. And um
1: That men know. that men from the Naval Academy were dating men. Right. Oh, okay, right. I mean it,
2: you know, that that would have been highly risky for them. Extremely risky, I imagine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. St. John's would be an interesting, that that would be a very interesting relationship. Someone from St. John's and someone from the Naval Academy. Cause St. John's is this bizarre throwback to like ancient Greek, um, educational systems. Like people go to St. John's, they all study the ancient, the classics.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, and it, it's, yeah, it, it's like zero job training or anything like that. It's all you know, uh, ancient Greek and Latin, and and uh, you know, German philosophy from the fifteen hundreds and shit like that. Very uh, old school, but in a bizarre liberal hippie sort of
2: way. Yeah, I had. Uh, I mean, I had some friendships actually with uh, some graduate students there in my my I think my senior year. So I got a pretty good idea of what was going on, and I thought it was just just such an interesting. Uh, antithetical view of experience,
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and forms an interesting framing for the whole midshipman experience. So how did you get involved in the sexual assault thing?
2: Well, um, you know, back to when I was a freshman, I was really concerned about, well, yeah, I was concerned about purity. I mean, I still sort of morally think, uh, you know, rape is pretty repugnant. But uh, um, at the time, I felt like that was a, a good way for me to, you know, do something you know morally positive uh, and i was really uh, upset by the the culture which to some extent, i think is still like i would say my view of what's going on with the culture is mostly intact and i still have major problems with what's going on um but yeah why why yeah partly because of the my view of my religious views but then at the same time i i could see that uh you know there was a lot there were a lot of men who were extremely misogynist and there were there were i guess before i learned more of the nuance i thought uh i was kind of kind of one of those people that was um easy to make judgments on other other men you know when their rumors came around and i thought oh, this, you know this is this is terrible you know these people are they're just taking advantage of their power whatever and they're is you know, i sort of demonized this this thing which which you know in reality when when something like that happens and when an actual case of rape occurs it's it's it is it is to be demonized but um so i joined this group to be part of that i guess not i guess for real
1: yeah to be to be to address this issue in, in the military which is as you say is a very real issue and they're they're Uh, a lot of uh of rapes in the military that have gone unreported because it's such a male dominated culture and it's so easy to abuse power in a culture like that and so much testosterone and so it's sort of a a perfect situation for women to be victimized um and, and because it was ignored for so long, it's sort of become normalized in some ways, I think, in military culture.
2: Yeah, I mean, if it's normalized, it's, it wasn't normalized then in the sense that, well, it, I mean, I guess you have the, you have the explicit, uh, maybe in the culture, yeah, I would agree. It's not, it, maybe it's slightly changing, but the norms of the place of a woman uh, seem to still progress. What do you mean by that uh so so you know you have you have rules rules explicitly against all you know you have laws and rules explicitly against this kind of thing and then you have um, i guess the culture to me is is predomin- is is quite conservative uh mm. in general it's, right you know not individuals have a spectrum but uh, the culture itself seems to uh in general think that women don't have their place uh so much in the military
1: right right it's overwhelmingly christian uh, probably largely fundamentalist christian is that true
2: yeah i mean i i mean yes and, I, and but i would say that only backing my in my mind i i'm just thinking about the demographics of america slightly slanted towards rural america right, right which is exactly what you just said.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it is an accurate snapshot of America, but it's not the whole country. It's a particularly rural. Um, the guy I talked with earlier said like, you know, his impression was like the entire state of Texas went into the military. Like, I don't know if the Naval <laughs> academies like that, but the Marines was like, you know, overrun with Texans.
2: Yeah. It's, there's a big contingent from Texas. Absolutely. They, <laughs> they have, they, they, generally have this, that view that you're talking.
1: <laughs> right, right. So what was it like? So you're on this panel. Or was it like an educational thing or were you Th- there trying were, cases or what?
2: Yeah, there was an educational component of it. And that's probably where I played most of my part. Um, there was also a component of it where, I mean, it, it basically ended up that we were facilitators of the legal process for someone who wanted to um, uh, go through with a, uh, reporting a, a rape incident. Or, right. or a sexual assault incident,
1: and are, the, and are these all women victims, or were men victimized as well?
2: No, absolutely, uh, absolutely not. There were definitely cases where men were victimized, and, and those those came up as well. One of the frustrating things, but also an appropriate maybe thing, is that it's it's not the place of these midshipmen to actually. They're not counselors. They're not. Right. They're not there to be support. And one of many, much of the training that we had was actually to just, you know stay in our role only as facilitators of
1: this kind of process. So they come to you, you report it to the savvy officer, and, and away it goes. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of a similar situation to what's going on in universities now,
2: where they've got people completely unqualified are handling these things. Yeah, I mean, you could you could definitely make an argument that we're, we were unqualified if that's what you're doing. But I, I would also say that, you know, the microcosm of the naval Academy is just a a pressure cooker for, you know, the rest of this, the same culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And was your impression that the, the system was responding to these cases legitimately, or was it more or less a, a system to sweep stuff under the carpet?
2: (sighs) Yeah. Um, I would say that it was a hyperactive, uh, maybe hyperactive schizophrenic, uh, response so what do i mean by that um hyperactive in the sense that there was a lot of at the time i was there there was a lot of scrutiny about issues that had happened um the different academies i think explicitly there was some some public case that uh or some case that came public in from the air force academy actually
1: oh yeah that whole tailhook thing Mm -hmm.
2: Well, Tailhook's a whole other story. That's, that's outside the academy. But uh, 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 it might have been – I don't think that was the same time. I think it, it, that might actually just paint another picture of how recurring and how unaddressed these issues are um, because I think that was a, a totally different year. Um, but there was basically these things these, – these things. This culture persists and issues of rape uh, persist and then occasionally there are media, media leaks of of a major, of a major case. Um, and so then the, typically the administration is over, overreactive in the sense of like punitive measures, right? So they'll, they'll increase the rules and, and maybe they'll actually make, try to make an example of some, some, some young man or young, you generally, it's men who are the perpetrators, right? Um, and so that's why I say they're hyperactive. Um, there was no, in my view, there was really nothing profound being done to address the, the, you know, the root. The root, pro- root problems, and from what I've seen, because I just did like a quick search on the you know persistence of the issues, it seems like that has still not happened. Um, and then the other side of that is much like what uh, I believe one of your guests was talking about in the pedophilia cases. There seems to be a culture where the presumption is on um, guilt, so it's it's very hard, um, I guess, to be objective. But uh, so, the, so this, you know, the, the military has their own judicial system, uh, which is not the same as the United States. And, and they, I think the lawyers actually in general do a very good job. Of all military officers, I would say my experience with the lawyers is that they're uh, typically more objective. But in general, the, the commanding officers are, um, because they're coming from that same culture where we're talking about, they're a little more conservative and they're, they're very prone to need some sort of uh, reaction the presumption is unfortunately more towards guilt uh than you know it should be in these cases and from from being on the inside i would say there are multiple multiple incentives for people to false report as well which, really which is very complicated because no, you know, who wants to say that we have an issue where uh commanding officers of all the dod are saying well we have a reporting problem and and it's true we probably do have a reporting problem but Um, you also have, the more you have reporting problems, uh, the more that there is reporting and emphasis on reporting, the uh, you have more and more false reporting as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's so difficult if not impossible to to sort out what's false and what isn't in these situations. Because you're talking about consent and there are no witnesses and, you know.
2: Yeah. yeah. If if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll paint the context too, which is there are many rules which um, basically put someone in danger. So like binge drinking is very common and drinking underage is unauthorized and it's often, you know, so there, there are many situations which a midshipman uh, could get themselves in where they are basically in a major violation of a rule in which they are fear being expelled if that is found out. Oh, I see what you're right? saying. So then you throw in what ha- what really happened in this this context, which usually involves some sort of binge drinking. And then people, I've I've even heard of the positive case, which is a couple makes makes an active decision that he gets he will admit rape so that she is not uh, able to lose her position at the naval academy. And I mean, whether I mean this is a a rumor, but it seems like you know it's like a kind of bizarre romantic gesture. But uh, instead of them both being expelled for uh, drinking underage or something. Um, you know, he takes the uh, dramatic hit and, uh, I guess he maybe even becomes a sex offender. I'm not sure.
1: Uh, that's amazing. Can you imagine? Wow. You become a registered sex offender because you love your girlfriend so much that you sacrifice your own career to keep her from getting kicked out. Holy shit.
2: Yeah. It's like it's, it's like it's complicated, and yeah, and the, the gender dynamics, and I would say the the emotional relationships are very complex too. Because um, I mean, basic, you know, these institutions exist to make people have intense relationships. I mean, it's, and it's the, you know, it's the same when people are deployed. It's a very similar kind of context where it's a it's a very unique situation. People are isolated from their external communities, and they have a lot of really intense bonding experiences. Yeah, and then you know, throw in. This weird mix of culture and rules and such and it's a it's, it gets pretty bizarre pretty fast.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh Sebastian Junger. Do you know who he is? No, I don't. He wrote a book called The Perfect Storm that that uh I think that's his best known book. Actually,
2: um, I I might know the book. Is that that's about the um, Combat Rescue, I believe.
1: Um no, I think it's about um it's about this hurricane.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, actually, it's the same thing. So I, I do know the book. It's and the guys
1: the, are like fishermen who get caught in the hurricane, right? Yeah, it was a terrible movie starring George Clooney. Um, anyway, he he uh, was embedded with uh, I think Marines in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan for nine months, I believe. And they did a, he did a documentary with another guy. I think it's uh, Restrepo was the name of the documentary. Yep. Okay, I'm yeah. familiar with him. Yeah, and then there's a a book called War, a companion book that that he put together. Anyway, you know, it's when you were talking there, I was just thinking, I was remembering an interview. It might have been with Bill Maher where, you know, uh, you know, he was saying like, these guys have no, they're not, they're not motivated by geopolitics. They've got no interest in, you know, whether a pipeline is going to run from, you know, the, this place to that place or, you know, world heroin production or, you know, there's none of this sort of geopolitical stuff motivates them. And the interviewer said, so what is it? What makes them go through this, these incredible, horrible experiences and continue and then miss it when it's over? And what he said, uh, love, it's all about love. It's, you know, you, even when you hate these guys you're in the unit with, when you're under fire with them, you love them. They're, they're saving your life every day. You're saving their lives every day. You're relying on one another to such a a depth that it's impossible to imagine when you get back home. Mm You know, and, and you make a very good point that, that the institutions themselves are anticipating that and preparing for that. It's, you know, the guys you go in with as a freshman, those are guys you go through the whole experience with. Right. I mean, that's, it's trying to form these, these very tight, tightly bonded groups of people.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, it's complex because all, you know, we, you know, we know from previous generations that, that, um, you know the men who were in their in their units in in Vietnam or World War 2 that you know they're they typically view those relationships as stronger than maybe you know with their with their fam with their own family right yeah. and now with uh, the integration of women uh, which by the way I'm I'm a fan of I just think there are major problems thinking about how that actually affects a human being who then feels love and then some maybe in some sense competition or jealousy or I need to protect this person, um, or maybe this person doesn't have free will, I don't know, because maybe I'm a little bit insecure and obsessive or something. I mean, it's, it's really, really kind of bizarre to think about a good solution to that problem.
1: Well and also and you know you you highlighted the way these institutions are designed to encourage bonding with your your colleagues. Yeah. But to some extent they're also designed to encourage the dehumanization of other people. Absolutely, yeah. So um you know the vietnamese were i forget what the 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 bad word for them was right but the japanese were nips and the krauts and the you know everybody gets dehumanized the enemy always gets dehumanized and a lot of it's this sort of raw raw male locker room football you know we are the champions bullshit that excludes women so it it seems like an environment where the the objectification and dehumanization of women is also um you know very likely to it's supported by that kind of structure
2: yeah i mean it's it's a i would say it's supported it's an i would partly it's an internal contradiction right i mean i'm i'm a, a, i would say and probably you are too but i would be comfortable making jokes about sexuality or um you know my ma- let's call it my male perspective on sexuality which might be relatively more visual um and that would not be pc of course but it is definitely something that would add to the bonding with other men
1: right and that's you know that's right. human nature well and and you know having uh you know, you're, you're dealing with all this sort of, I I remember that Sebastian Junger thing, like these guys are on this point in a Valley where they're getting shot at every day, every day they're taking fire and they're living, you know, behind sandbags and these little huts and it's just fucking horrible. And I remember there was a scene in one of the huts where they're, they're under fire and they're scrambling around getting their, you know, ammunition and reloading and calling in airstrikes and whatever. And, uh, I notice, like up on the wall, there's like a, a centerfold, right? <laughs> These guys, yeah. like they're sleeping on the ground. They're pissing in you know bottles and throwing them off the side of the cliff. But they've got like some naked woman up on the wall. So I don't know. It's like the, you know, if you can have nothing else, at least you can have a picture of a naked woman on the wall, I guess is what I'm saying. But if there were a
2: woman in that unit, you couldn't do that. Yeah. And that's, but that, that maybe talks more to some of the critique that I think I've heard you speak about, of uh, sort of on the liberal side of the spectrum, which is, you know, right speech and, you know, all this kind of protection of people's sensitivities is it's, um, I, I feel like that's kind of, I don't know, there's, I don't know where the middle ground is. Um, it, you can, yeah. you don't want to not let these people bond and you don't want to, you know, disallow, let's say humor or hum- humanity. Right. So, um, I, to me, it's very problematic if you, if you cut all these th- things in the, or w- without some very good alternative.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get confused and I'm going to offend people by saying this, but I do get confused that women agitate for the right to have combat positions. Cause to me, it feels like Like, that's the last thing you should want. It's almost like, like, you know, people get confused about gay people wanting marriage. Like, why do you want to get married, you know? I mean, come on. But I can understand the marriage thing because of the legal rights and, you know, the visitation and inheritance and taxation and all that. That's very clear. But I can't understand why anyone would want to be in a combat position. And for women... I. I don't get it. I mean, it, it it seems to me, I can understand why women want the right to be in the military because, you know, it's a job and there's a lot of positive things about it potentially. But, um, up there, you know, eating dirt and shooting and getting shot at. I don't, I don't get it. Honestly.
2: Well, I mean, the the first thing that comes to my mind though, is just this, um, you know, overlapping bell curves of gender, right? Most, 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 yeah they're pretty close um so you get the you get the women who are you know as capable or more capable than most most men and uh, masculine things and you get men who are on the other side i
1: mean well just- I guess i'm I'm on the end of the bell curve you know like on the other end from the macho hard ass guys who want to go up to the front which i guess right. is why I don't get it
2: you're the antithesis in some sense of, of the women who might serve in, on the front lines.
1: Yeah. There are plenty of women who are, who are tougher than I am. I have no doubt about that. I got knocked unconscious by a woman once. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was, I was sparring with her in this karate school that I had just started going to. And, uh, in, I had studied Kung Fu in an earlier school for years and there were no women in the school. And so sparring was always male to male. And, uh, I moved to this other place and started this Taekwondo school and it was uh, full contact with, you know, pads and everything. And he put me in with this woman and I'd, I'd never hit a woman before, you know? And, uh, and she was smaller than me and I didn't even know where to hit her. And so I was just sort of befuddled and confused and she got insulted and fucking knocked me out. <laughs> Heel strike right to my solar plexus. It
2: was a philosophical update. I <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I, I rebooted quickly. Yeah. So, uh, what do you? What's your perspective? You know, talking about the the culture and and uh, you know the inside and outside and all that. What are your feelings about uh, Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden and, and things like yeah, this?
2: Here's an interesting question. I don't know. Yeah. In general, I'm, uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I side on irreverence, um, so kind of, I'm, I'm, I wish they would be treated better. Uh, I think, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. So obviously I understand, I understand that, um, it's maybe I'm, I feel maybe even schizophrenic about it. Right. So I have friends who work in, uh, relatively secret places, which, you know, they, their lives in, depend on these kinds of you know keeping information secret and there are real threats to the country and and that makes me sort of still hold on to some of these conservative views um and then at the same time i'm you know part of being american and our founding is 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 you know revoking the throne and not being you know oppressed by tyrannical leaders so um it's i don't know where i don't know where the right balance is with you know, technology and, you know, this decentralized non-state actors, it's it's pretty complex. And I'm not going to admit that I have a good, a good uh, resting place for this. Yeah. Mind. No, I think you're right.
1: It It is very complicated. I mean, even when you just said there are threats to the country, my, my first impulse was, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And then I thought, well, but are they really threats to the country or are they threats to Exxon?
2: Well, I mean, you know, a threat to Exxon and the way that we're currently set up is to some extent, you know, a threat to us. I mean, I I, I don't look, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the way our corporate government uh, institution seems to work, but let's, you know, just imagine us with, you know, an amazingly higher energy cost immediately. It would be, it would be extremely painful for a lot of people and, my guess: the way things are set up, is the poor, the poorest of us would would hurt the worst.
1: Well, let me go devil's advocate a little bit, and and again, you know, I'm not in any way an expert on any of this, so I'm purely talking out my ass. But that's what we do here. Um, okay, so let's say let's say uh, Iran takes over the Middle East, and you know they take over Saudi Arabia, Iraq, whatever, and they cut all oil exports to the US. So sort of like a 1970s oil crisis again. And I by the way, I was pumping gas. I was in high school for the oil crisis. I had a job pumping gas for 3.41 an hour minimum wage. So I remember that shit and price of gas went sky high. There were rationing and you know lines around the block and all that. So what happens? What would happen? Well, one of the things, you're right, there would be a lot of disruption and a lot of pain in various ways. Prices of vegetables and everything would go up because of tropic trucking and shipping and yada, yada, yada. But here's another thing that would happen. Uh, local suppliers would get a massive boost because now shipping was much more expensive. So instead of getting your fruits and vegetables shipped up from Chile, the local stuff is suddenly much cheaper, even if they're selling it at a higher price. You'd get uh, massive in in investment and impulse into alternative energy sources. So you'd get lots of jobs in wind turbines and water turbines and geothermal and solar. All that stuff would take off. So you know, I think disruption per se is not necessarily a negative, especially if we're in an unsustainable, very fucked up system as it is. I think disruption is the best thing that can happen, actually.
2: Well, well, I'm convincible., come on, fight with me. I'm fight a listener, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm more sympathetic <laughs> to your view. Uh, I, I do think there, you know it would be much wiser to create a society that was robust to uh, issues, both, both in culture, so like a certain kind of maturity to the immaturity of other cultures rather than uh, you know, immature reactiveness. And then, yeah, you know, just exactly. lead by example. Yeah, from a systems design standpoint, there's a good argument to be made for for much more decentralized uh, infrastructure, which is antithetical to political power uh, and the way we have it structured, but... Yeah. That's, it'd be see, nice to have those in place. Right. Now see I I
1: think that's what it gets down to when you say uh you know there are threats to our country. I think I feel like they're they're not threats to our country. They're threats to some of the people who are running the country and some of the institutions that are most powerful in the country. And the problem is that then, you know, normal people from Montana and Nevada and Texas end up getting their legs blown off. Because there are threats to these
2: institutions that don't give a fuck about these guys yeah i yeah it's it's i mean i' I'm very very sympathetic unfortunately so i can't I'm not really going to be able to argue with you on this i mean if if you think about the major demographics of people that are enlisted and that are put in harm 's way for the most part, they are um young men uh from i mean a lot of times okay you have the the urban you have the rural poor, and you also have the urban poor, and so you have r- urban African Americans and or Latinos, and that is their best bet for socioeconomic advance. Yeah, and that's the way we've set up the society right now. So, and
1: it's always been that way. I mean, that, I I give America a lot of shit, but that's the way the military's always been. It's you know the poor and uneducated are the ones who get sent into the battle. It's, it's just,
2: oh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's, but you know, we're, we're talking post agrarian societies, right? So, um, or I mean, post invention of agriculture and, and hierarchical societies. So I would, I would agree with you. Um, it doesn't mean, but that you know, status quo, you're, you know, previously you're making an argument against the status quo, right? So yeah. um, the yeah. way it was, is not necessarily how it should or needs to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You ever read, um, anti-fragile,
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Nassim Taleb.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great book and and very relevant to to what we're talking about now. This, yeah, I, I love I love for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, he wrote The Black Swan, which I guess is his best known book. Um, but in Antifragile, he he makes this, you know, one of these arguments that's so simple and so clear that I can't believe we hadn't all thought of this a long time ago which is that um, stable is not the opposite of fragile. Fragile is when, I think the way he talks about it in the book is he says, if you have a, like a, a, a vase in a box and you shake the box, the vase breaks, so that's fragile. And then if you have like a rock in the box and you shake the box and nothing happens, that's stable. But the opposite of fragile would be if you something's in the box and you shake the box and it gets stronger. That's anti-fragile. So it's not just that it doesn't break, it actually gets stronger. And he talks about different systems that are designed so that fluctuation and, and change and, and surprise actually makes the system stronger as opposed to just impervious to those things. It's a very interesting you know, three-part way of looking at situations and systems. And personalities, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think of centralization, and um, I mean, I was, you know, I was in the air force, and we were thinking about strategy quite a bit. So th- this, to me, is uh, extremely relevant for you know whatever protecting the, the the parts of the culture and nation which I'm very fond of. Um, yeah, we're we're very, you know, uh, fragile in a way, right? So. After after nine, nine uh, not not just nine eleven, but you nine know, eleven and two thousand eight, we've become extremely centralized in the way we execute um, our military industrial. I mean, obviously, it was very powerful before, but I think it's even even more centralized and powerful. When you include banking and yeah. finance, it gets pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Which, as you say,
1: makes the entire system more fragile and 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 uh, ironically more vulnerable to attack because yeah. because now you can you know it's it's ready it's primed for what what were you analyzing? you were an
2: analyst in the Air Force. What were you analyzing? yeah what does that mean um, so the, the group that I was with they were doing you know operations analysis, but what does that really mean? That means we were initially we were looking at future force structures, so you know what should the air force invest uh, in for what we believed were the threats um, you know some some time frame. You know, let's say anywhere from ten to thirty years out, and so that was mostly what we spent our time thinking about and We used all these big, whatever, computerized models. Uh, Unfortunately, that's that's part of that's a major reason why I'm out of the out of the Air Force right now. If if uh, the 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 politics, you know, coming in, there is a you know like a sign for something like the. you know, the objective analysis of the Air Force, something like the, the the best objective analysis for the Air Force. But when you actually get involved in the what's going on in the process, I mean it's what we were in the Air Force, so what's the political politically best thing for my, you know, most senior director to do? But she has alliances with other generals and what are you know, what, what's what are they doing? They're supporting programs. I, I would think most of them probably believe in, but really they believe in' them. i'm now I would now say because to a great extent they're in their own best interests, not necessarily in the nation's best interest,
1: which brings us back to where we started with intelligent people
2: believing bullshit right yeah, absolutely yeah. Because, um, what is it the the intelligent person's ability to deceive themselves is is um something i think maybe culturally uh we need to start having really and and we are actually starting to have some some small conversations but probably really big conversations about
1: that's the thing like there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's accepted until it comes into the public eye and then suddenly it's a big deal You know, we see this all the time in politics. There's all kinds of stuff going on, you know, while they're uh, impeaching Bill Clinton, both Newt Gingrich and Dennis Hastert were, you know, involved in their own sort of sexual shenanigans, but it was all under the table. So Uh, anyway, it's that's neither here nor there.
2: Well, it's I mean, it's it's quite apropos to what you're saying before with the You know, the the strength of self-deception for those who are, uh, you know, communicating their support of some ideology or some, you know, some way of some way of life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You've got a vested interest in believing that it's the right thing to do, because otherwise things get very uncomfortable and you've got to make some major decision which you did. So you you got out um and you said that this was a major part of it that you felt uncomfortable with the with the politics is that that you felt a conflict with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I guess I was fairly junior to be exposed to, you know, very senior level let's call it financial decision making in the uh in the in the Air Force and the DoD in general. And while there are a lot of people trying to do the right thing, I think the Incentives that are set up in our political system are, and and the, the play out in the DoD are are very very problematic, and um, so I I decided my my efforts were best put placed elsewhere.
1: Yeah, well, good. I won't ask you what you're doing now because I don't want to make it any easier to to identify you. If I, I mean, think I'll send you an MP3 of this and you can decide if there's anything you want to cut out or or not before I air it. Okay, appreciate uh, that. Uh, yeah um listen we've been we've been going for an hour and a half now. I don't want to take up any more of your time. you're an extremely interesting guy and i'm I'm really happy we did this and I got a chance to chat with you for a while. I appreciate your thoughtfulness
2: well yeah thank you thank you too i mean uh hopefully this will make make a difference to somebody who has uh i don't know feeling like they're alone or whatever with their thoughts while while doing their service,
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I, I was amazed at how many people responded when I said something about, you know, I think it was because I was looking at download numbers and I saw all these numbers, these downloads in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm actually, do you think, do people listen to podcasts a lot in the military?
2: Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I can't. I don't know. I mean, we, they're young kids, right? So Yeah, yeah. Um, most of them are of the demographic where they're getting all their entertainment off of uh, you know, online portals. iTunes is everywhere.
1: Right. Um, so and absolutely. I, and I imagine Rogan's pretty popular
2: with them. Rogan's probably, yeah, extremely popular. He's a and, man's man. And, yeah, I mean, and that's a great thing. Uh, I think, I, I hope that I'm just a few years ahead of what will become a, a, a wave of um, people changing their sentiments on things like, you know, psychedelics and whatnot. And we didn't even talk about that for, um, I didn't want you, I didn't want to get you in any more trouble, man. Well, I mean, I'm, I don't think I'd be getting in trouble by just saying that, uh, the, some of the studies that are being done on PTSD and that are, they're, they're you know, publicly available, you know, they're, they're, they're very convincing and, um, they financially, they would, they would be very good for the you know VA for the country and they would make amazing, you know, Potentially, uh, make impactful changes to people who are suffering. Agree? Yeah,
1: yeah. You know it, that gets us into a similar situation where we were talking about you know whether or not the military culture encourages or or um, uh, what's the word uh, enables the rape culture. You know, because th- there is an internal conflict if if the military is using PTSD to treat i uh, sorry, MDMA to treat PTSD. I kind of feel like there's something inherent in the MDMA experience that would render someone um, completely incapable of going off and killing strangers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, if someone's got the PTSD, they're already like they're already out. They're already they've already done that or, or seen that or whatever. Has caused them to to have to suffer from the, the syndrome, but um, or the disorder. But uh, you know what I mean. There's there's something like LSD. Treating LSD or using LSD or MDMA or marijuana or something to you know make better soldiers. It just feels like. Well, wait a minute. No, it's going to make people refuse to
2: be soldiers. You know. I, I think probably in general you're correct, but. Um I still think you got to think about the sort of. There's still an institution, and there's still people making small decisions. Most people are not on the front line, um, and those that are, like again, like we were talking about, didn't necessarily have other alternative uh, economic routes. Yeah.
1: So I mean. Yeah. Well, I I was in Israel in '99 at this MDMA conference. You may have heard me talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was sponsored by the Israeli military specifically because of their interest in the PTSD treatment. Yeah. Uh,
2: Speaking of, you know, we didn't bring this up, but it's curious. Uh, I don't know what, what Israeli military is doing with their gender roles and how they facilitate that. But um, that's, that would be an open question. Maybe, maybe you might follow up with somebody. It seems like they might be doing better. I'm not sure.
1: It seems like it. I know that, that, Everyone in Israel serves in the military, including women. Right. So there are a lot of women in the military and they're hard ass. I mean, yeah, they're serious. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if, if they're in separate units. I don't think so. I believe they're, they're mixed in, but I don't know the, the logistics and the specifics. And they're sexy too. Oh. Man, yeah, it, I, 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 that's uh, no comment there. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a woman with a gun. I don't know. There's something about it. There, there really is, and
2: that's <laughs> that's uh, that just adds more fuel to the fire.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right, Elliot. Thanks for your time, man. That was a lot of fun.
2: Chris, really appreciate the opportunity.
1: All right, talk to you
2: soon. Bye bye. All right, cheers.
1: There you have it, Elliot. Uh, he didn't want to use his full name, so that's why we're just going with Elliot on that one. Um, going to play you out with uh, The Mark of a Good Man, just to change it up a little bit. Uh, those of you who are missing your smoke alarm can always go to CarseyBlanton.com and listen to that song and, and a lot of other really great stuff she's got there, uh, and she even lets you download it for free if you want to. She has a tip jar. Pay what you can, pay what you will for Carsey. Um, anyway, we're going to, I'm just going to play this out with, uh, the Mark of a Good Man. It's a song I played last week's episode and it's been in my head ever since. I really like it. It's by Mark Boyd, who's goes by, I don't know if it's a band. I think he plays all the instruments himself. Um, but it's a Bimini road and, uh, you can find him on SoundCloud. Just look for Bimini road. The song again is called the Mark of a Good Man. Have a good week and, uh, hope you come back next week.